Good morning. That was very well stated. Thank you for that. That was a very good summation of the kingdom and the importance of that. I appreciate it. I appreciate the worship team. I appreciate everybody at the back. I appreciate seeing little faces and little bodies out there today. Nothing will foster appreciation for the Sunday school teacher like Family Sunday. (laughs) Uh, uh, I remember those days. You know, it's good to see you all and, and truly thank the Sunday school workers and the, and, uh, the Sunday school teachers very much. Um, yes, thank you. Absolutely, yes. So I know about one joke, and I'm going to tell it today. So there's a story of three ministers that were playing a round of golf. My family's heard this multiple times because, like I said, it's the only joke I know. Three ministers played a round of golf, 18 holes, finished up headed back to the locker room to change. So they go back in the locker room after having a good round of golf, and two of them noticed that one was fairly distraught, and he was kind of sitting there on the bench looking down, and they could tell that something was bothering him, and they asked, what's what's going on? We had a good time. Why are you looking so down? He said, well, he said, I have a confession to make. He said, I struggle with the bottle. It's uh, devastating my family, and I'm having a hard time with it, and I keep trying to get away from it, and I keep failing. And the moment just immediately turns somber. And the sec- one of the other ministers sits down beside him, puts him, his arm around him, and thanks him for his candid uh, confession. And he said, you know what? He said, I, I have a confession to make as well. He said, I'm a compulsive gambler. And I, he said, it's just taken my family to the brink of disaster. And he said, I feel your pain. And uh, they're kind of sitting there having a moment. They notice the other minister kind of pacing back and forth in front of the lockers. And they're like, don't you see what's going on here? Do you have anything to confess? He said, yes, I'm a compulsive gossip and I can't wait to get out of here. (laughs) It's a humorous story with an accurate point. And I purposely start out on a light note because my subject matter today is anything but light. In fact, I very much hope if you're joining us today that you make it back next week for the great news. Today's subject will be primarily bad news. Two weeks ago, we discussed the Bible, what it is, what it says about itself, and the function it serves in our life. Last week, we began a four-part study and discussed creation, the fact that God created everything from nothing, and that he created mankind in his image, male and female, to have dominion over the created order, and to be in a special relationship with him. We know that because we were created in God's image, our lives have purpose, and we possess dignity based on that truth. Today we will be discussing the fall of mankind into sin, and it is a very tragic story with profound consequences. It touches every part of creation, and it fractures relationships, which we will discuss in greater detail below. But it is my purpose to show you that mankind and our first parents, Adam and Eve, ruined ourselves. And I use the word ruined purposefully, not hurt, not damaged, Ruined. And it's not my goal today to exhaustively define sin, which is certainly an important endeavor, but to discuss the events surrounding the fall and their consequences. The phrase that kept resounding in my mind as I considered Genesis 3 is collective brokenness. It just kept going through my mind. A collective brokenness. And church, left to ourselves, I'm not talking about after, after salvation, I'm talking about left to ourselves. We are a broken Ruined race, alienated from God. 
We are a race who will go to great lengths to try and either justify or deny our brokenness and sinfulness. As a matter of fact, if you listen to popular opinion, you will hear such statements as, people are generally good at heart, or my personal favorite, at least I'm not as bad as old so-and-so over there. (sighs) Yes, our culture rails against any notion that we are sinful And not just sinful, I would use the term depraved. I think that's a biblical idea. The late journalist Malcolm Muggeridge makes this statement. He says this, the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time, the most intellectually resisted fact. Say that again, we're gonna go through it. The depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time, the most intellectually resisted fact that is spot on. It is empirically verifiable. What does that mean? Well, look around you. Empirical evidence means evidence that is right in front of your face. It's empirically evident. Read history. Watch a popular sitcom. Turn on the news. Take a peek at social media. Better yet, if you want a front row seat to depravity, peer into your own heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says it this way, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus says in Mark 7, beginning at verse 20, listen to this, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. It's a pretty clear statement. Job says man drinks iniquity like water. Church, if there were a device that would play a video or audio loop of the thoughts and feelings that go through my mind on a given day, you would not allow me in this building. Thankfully, there is no such thing. And I don't say that to be funny at all. Be honest. Would you sign up for such a thing? The thoughts I have about slow drivers in the passing lane would be enough to have me locked up for a good term. (laughs) We are broken. And all we have to do to be sure is to be honest in our self-evaluation. It's empirically verifiable. But as Muggeridge says, it is the most intellectually denied fact. We know it but we want to deny it. We don't want to face up with that. Nobody wants to admit it. We deny it. Many abuse medications or drugs to stun it. Many drink alcohol to escape it. Many hide behind self-righteous exteriors and point fingers at others to soothe their own conscience. We are a mess, and it's the last thing that we want to admit. And sadly, the only cure for this malady is to confess it and seek refuge in the one who is not broken. But that is for next week. Today we look at the headwaters of this problem, the fall that occurred in the Garden of Eden. And our passage today is quite long. I, I thought about breaking it up and I thought, no, I think the kids are gonna be in. I think this is an excellent passage to read. So I'm gonna read the bulk of chapter three of Genesis and I'm gonna preface it. Since it's so long, we won't stand as we uh, typically do. But preface this with Genesis chapter two, 15 and 16, or 15 to 17. Hear the word of God. This is what Genesis two, this is a preface to Genesis three. 
Listen to what Genesis 2, 15 to 17 says. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. Genesis chapter 3. Listen to, the, listen to the Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to, to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of the both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig, fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman who you gave to, me, to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Don't ignore that verse. It's grace right there in, the, in this chapter. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest we reach out, he reach out his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Father, as we come to you this morning, we pray that you would inform our hearts and minds, guide and direct us, Father, as we examine your word. I pray that we would walk out of here both aware and encouraged of what your word has to say about us. Father, we're thankful that even in this chapter three of Genesis, this devastation that came to your creation, we see your grace. And I, I pray that we would look to it as we examine your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So as we consider today's passage, we will break it up into three categories, and they are temptation, fall, and judgment and its consequences. First, the temptation. Let's simply consider the passage. So at the end of chapter 2, as we know very well from Genesis chapter 2, we are left with Adam and his wife, Eve, in paradise, and the word says that they were naked and not ashamed. That means that they were in a state of purity. They enjoyed harmony with God, and remember this, they were in a state of purity. They enjoyed harmony with God, harmony with each other, harmony with themselves, and even harmony with the creation. And beloved, that's a state we all want to get back to, right? Would everyone agree with that, I believe? At the beginning of chapter 3, however, we're introduced to something sinister, and it starts out describing the craftiness of the snake, And that statement changes the tone of the entire story thus far. The snake, who we obviously identify as Satan, begins by questioning what God has said with a misinterpretation, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and then he quickly moves to an all-out denial of God's truth. That's what's going on in Genesis 3. What God is telling you is not true, Eve. He's hiding something from you, something that will make you happier or perhaps more powerful through some higher knowledge that God is keeping from you. Eve, he's hiding something because he doesn't want you to be able to be like him. Eve, he's a cosmic killjoy. He knows when you eat this, you're going to be like him, and he doesn't want that. Is that a familiar whisper to anyone? Thus, God is accused of being motivated by selfishness. This suggests that he is neither loving nor trustworthy. The enemy moves in on the subject of autonomy, and autonomy means self-rule, and that's what he is tempting them with. Self-rule. Throw this aside, Eve and Adam. Rule yourselves. That's where you're going to find true happiness. God's telling you not to do this because he's not trustworthy. He knows if you do it, you're going to be like him. Eat it. In a single statement, the temptation is this. Satan suggests that God's word could not be relied upon as the absolute authority and source of truth for mankind. That's the temptation. He's suggesting that God is lying, and he is suggesting that they seek self-rule for true happiness. That's exactly what's happening. That's the temptation. Second, the fall itself, and we're going to look back at the scripture, verses six, uh, verses 6 through 13. We're going to touch on them once again. 6 to 13. So the woman saw that the tree was good, good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate, and the eyes of the both were open, and so on and so forth. Eve knowingly and willingly takes the fruit and eats it. And so doing, gives to Adam, who readily eats right along with her. And spiritual death occurs in that moment of disobedience. I quoted a quote from Graham Goldsworthy out of this book last week, and I'm going to do the same this week. And I want you to hear what he says about the fall. Listen to what he says. The cunning of the snake is seen again in that he presents his lies in the context of the truth. Satan's way. Eating the forbidden fruit did indeed mean that the humans came to know good and evil. It says so in Genesis 3.22. But the process by which they achieved that involved a rebellion against truth and its source. Instead of knowing good and evil by rejecting evil and remaining good, they choose rather to reject good and become evil. 
The most important effect of this is that God is no longer regarded as the self-evident creator and Lord. His word is no longer accepted as self-evident truth, but is reduced to the status of the word of the creature. Both God and his word are seen as lesser authorities that must constantly be tested by higher authorities. Again, the cunning of the snake. He does not suggest that the humans transfer their allegiance from God to Satan, but only that they themselves should consider and evaluate God's claim to truth. The final effect was the same as if they had installed Satan as Lord, but it achieved it without the humans realizing it. They rebel against God, not by consciously making Satan their new final authority, but by taking that function to themselves. The truth of any proposition would, from this point onward, be tested by what is in humans themselves. In this sense, they became as God. The fall was a giant leap upward that went horribly wrong because it simply could not succeed. Dissatisfied with their humanness, listen to that, dissatisfied with their humanness, the couple reached for godhood. In lusting after a throne that was not theirs, they lost the privileges that they already had. They degraded themselves by trying to become what they could never be. The result was not the humanness to which mankind has always appealed in order to excuse its lesser sins. It was rather a condition that is less than human because it no longer consists primarily in a relationship with God that is characterized by love and trust. And so it goes. The temptation was placed before them and the decision was made to doubt God and then actively to defy his command. That is what happened. Someone may ask, and rightfully so, what does the disobedience of an ancient couple have to do with me in 2021? What does this have to do? Great story, but what does this have to do with me? Well, Adam and Eve were historic figures, but they were also the representative of the entire human race. In them, we all sinned and inherit their original sin. You won't have to turn there, but you can write it down if you would like. Romans 5.12 you want to write it down. Romans 5.12 says this. This is Paul. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Right there in one verse, Paul writes it down. In the time immediately after the sin, you can see the beginning of demise. Flip through Genesis. They want to cover their nakedness and shame. Eve blames the serpent. Remember Eve's comment? Eve blames the serpent. Well, he, he tricked me. Adam basically blames God by saying, hey, this lady you put here with me, she gave it to me. It's not my fault. They made excuses. Beloved, the son of our first parents was the sin of desired autonomy, of self-rule. We want to have our own way and we want to make our own rules. We do not want to answer for what we do and we resist any notion that we are not the captains of our own ship. Even as Christians, many times we want to ignore the clear teaching of Scripture if it presses in a little too hard on our lifestyle. We hear that whisper. Come on, Aaron. The only reason God put a prohibition on that action is because he's a cosmic killjoy wanting to rule over you. It's not hurting anybody after all. Just do it. You ever hear that whisper? The questioning of the integrity of God's word. 
as if God's commands are a mere suggestion that we should weigh in the scales to see if they apply to us. We are masters at justifying ourselves, and it is a reminder of our wickedness. Moving on to the third point of judgment and its consequences. We might ask, what is the result of this? How did this cosmic treason, as R.C. Sproul calls original sin, play out? How does it play out? Well, let's, again, let's consider the text just briefly. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So livestock, along with the rest of creation, are being cursed, but the snake carries a particular type of a curse. And even into this day, snakes seem to have a particular vulgarity about them, if you think about it. Ooh, snake. I don't know. Something to think about. Verse 15 the first gospel, and I would encourage you to latch on to this, verse 15 of Genesis 3, already right here in the midst of sin and condemnation, we find the first gospel. Look at verse 15. Talking, again, God is addressing the woman. I will put enmity between you, he's addressing the serpent, but he's talking about the woman. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Little hint there, little foreshadowing going on. Something from the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. Think about it. Now, on to the particular judgments. The particular judgments on Adam and Eve, verse 16. First, the woman is addressed. Look at verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Verse 16. So pain is introduced as a reality of the fallen world right there. It is not simply that physical pain becomes our lot, but there is also a disruption of the most intimate human relationship, that of a man and a woman in marriage. Passion and power will characterize the instincts of fallen humanity. And the pleasure of sexual relationship will be accompanied by pain and sorrow. It's listed right there in the verse we just read. One other thing I noted that I've read so many times in verse 16, and the language of it has always kind of confused me, but you'll look in verse 16. It says this, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Remember the context. God is addressing the woman. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. What does this mean? Your desire shall be for your husband. Now, one way we could take that, we can kind of puff our chest out a little bit, husbands. Your desire will be for your husband. Is that what he's talking about? I don't think so. As much as we would like to think that's what he's talking about, desire. Glance over at Genesis 4-7 right quick, just right on the next page. Genesis 4-7. Listen to what this says. This is Cain, the story of Cain and Abel. He says, if you, he's talking to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Listen, its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And the parallel here is quite close. In, three, in, in Genesis 3, 16, God says to the woman, your desire is for your husband and he shall rule over you. In, in 4.7, God says to Cain, sin's desire is for you, but you must rule over it. What are we talking about here? Well, the important thing to understand is what is meant by desire. 
When 4-7 says that sin is crouching at the door of Cain's heart like a lion and that its desire is for him, it means that sin wants to overpower him. That's what it means. It wants to defeat him and subdue him and make him the slave to sin. Now, when we go back to 3.16, we should probably see a similar meaning in the sinful desire of the woman when he says, your desire shall be for your husband. It means that when sin has the upper hand in woman, she will desire to overpower or subdue or exploit man. Hold on, women, I'm getting to the men. Don't Don't charge the stage. And when, listen to this, and when sin has the upper hand in man, he will respond in like manner. And with his strength, subdue her or rule over her. And in this way, maleness or masculinity, if you will, as God created it, has been depraved and corrupted by sin. And likewise, femaleness or femininity, as God created it, has been depraved and corrupted by sin. The essence of sin is self-reliance and self-exaltation. First in rebellion against God and then in exploitation of one another. The most important earthly relationship is going to be difficult because of the desire for self-rule. When you put two wannabe self-rulers together, things are gonna get heated in a hurry. A broken relationship that now takes great effort. That was verse 15, excuse me, verse 16. Now, moving on to man, look at verses 17 to 19. God turns to Adam and he says this, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The ground is cursed, and physical death awaits. In creation, Adam and Eve had been given dominion over the earth and all of the creatures. Now this dominion is challenged on every hand by the earth itself. And if you want to cross-reference this, we're not going to turn to it, but if you want to cross-reference, turn to Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 18. And reading, when, when Paul's talking about the creation groaning under the curse and it's longing to be set free from this, Paul's talking about this very thing. And it's a turnabout type of situation. In essence, God is saying, since you tried to usurp my rightful dominion over you, the creation which I gave you rightful dominion over is going to usurp your dominion over it. No more are the fruit trees and the food-bearing plants going to grow easily for man, but thorns and thistles will flourish. Many farmers sitting under my voice right now, spraying, trying to keep weeds out of the crop. It's an ongoing, never-ending struggle, is it not? You need another example of this? One of my favorite references for myself Come check cows with me and see the insects and the ragweed and the sheer seeming obstinance of the creation. (laughs) A year or two ago, we had to bottle feed a couple of baby calves. I remember twice a day, I would walk past a garden that was overgrown with weeds to a pen with ragweed sky high 
to feed two insubordinate, insubordinate stubborn calves whose mothers could not feed them appropriately. Has anyone ever in here tried to train a calf to a bottle? Anybody? I know there's people that have done that. Well, they act as if you're trying to kill them. They're like, they, they stiffen their legs like this. It's very um, taxing, if you will. And to make it worse, I tended to be impatient with the entire task because it was unspeakably hot and it was allergy season. And on such occasions, I tend to grumble about my poor luck to my wife. And when that happens, she sometimes grumbles back. And I remember thinking that during that time, you could experience nearly every aspect of the fall right there in my backyard. (laughs) As a result of sin, mankind will now experience physical death. That's the the end portion of our passage in verse 19. Matthew Henry, in commenting on this passage, says, God entrusted Adam and Eve with a spark of immortality, which they, by patient continuance and well-doing, might have blown up into an everlasting flame but they foolishly blew it out by willful sin. And now death is the wages of sin and sin is the sting of death. Church, God not willing that mankind should live forever in a body bearing the scars of sin makes mankind mortal and we will all return to dust. And finally, Adam and Eve are barred from the paradise of Eden. So the gig's up. God's very good creation that we saw at the, at the end of chapter two has fallen. And the picture of the fall and its consequences is completed as the human race is removed from the place in which life was truly life. Hereafter, what humans call life is simply existence in the midst of death. Sin has entered the world. And if you go on reading in Genesis, you will be amazed at how steep that slope becomes. In chapter 4, we see jealousy arise between brothers that leads to murder. In chapter 6, 5 and 6, the Bible says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Beloved, the consequences of the fall are just as real today, are they not? Rebellion resulting in pain. So what do we take away from Genesis 3? Well, remember this if you remember anything else. The fall of humankind into sin destroyed relationships. It destroys the relationship between humankind and God. It destroys the relationship between humankind and others, including man and woman. It destroys the relationship between humankind and creation. It destroys the relationship between humankind and him or herself. These things should both frighten and humble us. It certainly levels the field, doesn't it? Be cautious, Christian, and do not let pride take hold. We are a collectively broken race. We must recognize the sin nature in ourselves, even if we are Christians, and we should look at those around us still lost in their brokenness, and our hearts should weep for them. Mercy and patience, even here in Genesis, look what it says. One more uh, turn back to the scripture. 
It talks about how, um, and the, right there in verse 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. So again, right there in this chapter of devastation in verse 21, we find a foreshadowing, don't we? God looks at them and he sees them in their nakedness and their shame. And what does he do? He provides for them. Death, right there, is associated with the covering of their shame. Don't miss it. What's that foreshadowing? Good news is coming. And church, we should not be surprised by the depravity of the world. We see the moral decline. We watch the news. We see the political and moral confusion in our own country and around the world. And so often we seem puzzled by it. We need not be puzzled. This was set in motion in Eden. But we as Christians must be diligent to be salt and light. We as the church are meant to be preservatives of truth as we live out our lives before the world. And I will frequently quote John Calvin on this matter. It goes right along with what David mentioned earlier this morning. Listen to what John Calvin says. It is the task of the visible church to make the invisible kingdom of Christ visible. I'll read that again. It is the task of the visible church, that's us, to make the invisible kingdom of Christ visible. That is our task, church. We are to be the speakers of the kingdom of Christ. What kind of example are we setting? How well are we loving and exhibiting mercy? What messages do our actions send to our lost neighbors? Our behavior matters. Our understanding and living out of the truth matters. So I encourage you to walk in humility. Seek to live a life of obedience so that those around you can see what the kingdom of Christ is to look like in the midst of a fallen world. This is our calling. And again, I hope that you come back and tune in next week or you're here. I know this was a heavy statement. It has to be. Church, we hear so much out there about we need to get people saved and we need to do this and we need to do that and it's the absolute truth but as I heard one, one man say, before we get them saved, we have to make them realize that they're lost. Church, good news is coming. Next week, we are gonna talk about it. If you're a Christian, you already know what I'm talking about. The good news is coming. Thanks be to God, Eden is not the end of the story. There's gonna be a second Adam, as we all know. Is that right? He's coming, he came. Do you know him this morning? If you don't, I would encourage you to examine your heart. I would encourage you to turn to the pages of the New Testament and see his invitation to you. Come unto me, Jesus says. All you who are weary and heavy laden, take my yoke upon you. My burden is easy. You will find rest. And we will discuss the great news next week. Father, I pray that you would help us to examine our hearts. And more than anything, Father, as we consider this in the light of our salvation, that we are grateful for the mercy and the grace that you extend towards us in Jesus Christ. Father, help us look forward 
to the message next week and the message that we already know as Christians that reigns in our heart. Father, that though we were away from you because of our sin, that Christ calls us to come back and your Holy Spirit draws us to you, Father. The grace that comes through the knowledge of Jesus Christ, but help us to be humble by this story of this cosmic treason, Father, of sin and the depth of of mankind's sin and the seriousness of it, that we may more boldly and accurately see the gigantic form of the cross Father, we are weary. We are heavy laden with our own sin, even as Christians. Help us to see the mercy and grace that is offered to us through the truth of Jesus Christ and the hope that we have in his resurrection. Father, that one day, and Father, help us to look forward to it with such anticipation. One day, the fall is going to be corrected, Father. And there's gonna be a restoration of all things and sin will be destroyed and we will live in eternity with you apart from our sin. Help us to appreciate it. Help us even though during a, a difficult subject to go out here and courage knowing that Jesus Christ paid for our sin and made amends, Father, that we might be reconciled to you. Guide and direct us in Jesus' name, amen.